Turb for the Two Hundred Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. That's his weekly Monday appearance. Except on Tuesday, it is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular interest this week, the beginning of the offseason. Options have been accepted or declined. Players have declared for free agency. And of uh, particular interest, the question of uh, qualifying offers. Based on the fact that no one has ever accepted one, there's almost a little bit of a game theory element here where Major League teams should be more aggressive or are incentivized to be more aggressive by making more and more offers until a player actually shows that they're going to take this thing. These very pressing matters and more, many more of them, on what follows. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. It features the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Capital, capital P. Well, no, I wouldn't. I don't think I could get a job. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing that you work in an industry that allows you to set your own schedule. I also, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that recently. I was like, um, you know, because, and I think with good reason. I, uh, I think every day about um, alternatives to this job in in the event that I were fired. Right. Um, I think about this too. Uh, but well, only for you. Only for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think about alternatives of what you would do when we fire you. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And right. I like the use of when there as opposed to yeah. if. Right, yeah. Um, I've really – I mean that's something I feared since the first day because at first I didn't understand uh, why I was hired and I still continued not to understand as much. Um, yeah, well, we did. We shut down not graphs, hoping you'd get the hint, but you're still here. Yeah, I know. Here it is. Yeah, just hanging on. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, neither did I. At least, uh, yeah, maybe it's just like it's on David Appleman's agenda. He just hasn't gotten yeah. to it yet because everyone's yeah, always at, that, asking. I was in the conference, the conference call schedule, and he just ran out of time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because everyone's always asking him to add different things to the leaderboard or like a different feature, <laughs> right. and it's just always yeah. at the bottom of the list. He's too busy coding to fire you. Yeah. So there you, go. you just need to send him constant coding requests, and you'll keep getting a salary. Yeah, there you go. Oh, that's, so we figured that out. Very good. <laughs> um, wait, what? Oh, yeah, punctuality. Uh, let's see. How are you doing? Are you doing all right? Uh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm in uh, how, Phoenix, Arizona. How How is Phoenix? It's really good. Uh, we got to see. So we went to uh, Kyla McDaniel and I, along with uh, Eric Longerhagen who also writes for Fangas, we went to the AFL All-Star game together. How was it? Oh, it, it was really great. And uh, I will say that uh, for all his uh, conspicuous flaws, Kylie is uh, is a patient teacher, um, and he's helped me uh, understood, uh, understand the things that uh, the sort of person who's you know working as a scout uh, might be looking for as he's watching baseball games. Yeah, I think uh, Kylie can actually be a good person. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's been very helpful and has given me like a lot of like some of the things he'll tell me just in a sentence or two. They're just like huge shortcuts to things that you know I feel like uh, I would have had to read about at length, or maybe it's not even the sort of thing that's available. It's readily readily available, and so he's helped me a lot in that regard. Carson Sestouli, expert in shortcuts. Yeah, well, it's nice to have them. But like you, know, just like uh, estimating a player's raw power, you know, based off his BP, like that's not something I would have really been able to do, and I feel a little bit more 
qualified. Yesterday we saw uh, – we went to two games yesterday and like the later game – we saw this pitcher, Nate Smith, for the Angels, who, you know, will probably make an appearance at some point in the major leagues. Uh, it probably won't be a start. But, like, he was throwing a, a, occasionally, like, a really nice changeup, but it was really only breaking downwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kylie was like, well, yeah, when he throws that as good, like, when he's throwing that at its best, then it's fantastic. But if he misses, if he doesn't get that same sort of depth on every one of them, or he leaves it a little bit up, then that's a pitch that major leaguers will, you know, will crush. Mm-hmm. It's a meatball, yeah. Yeah, right. And so uh, just things like that where you uh, extrapolating, you know, reaching certain conclusions based off of, you know, limited data, whether it's, you know, visual data. You know, in this case, it's visual data. And I think that that's that's really what scouting is, right? I mean, if you don't have the performance, and, of course, for amateur players, you don't really, you know, you don't have performance guys below high A, certainly. You don't have, you know, the performances are not – entirely predictive of who they're going to be, and so you need to have to be able to um, reach certain conclusions based off of visual data like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's been very nice. And uh, yesterday, I've made uh, I've uh, made friends with a couple of scouts. Uh, yesterday, one of them was like, oh, man, you are an idiot. Because um, <laughs> I was, like, trying to time uh, – I was trying to do, like, uh, times from first uh, – from home to first – and uh, there's this guy, uh, you know, an Angels prospect, and I had him at four seconds flat, which is from the right side is uh, 80 speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone else had like 420, 430. And he's like, here, let me teach you. He was really sweet yeah. about it. He was like, you are a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you went to Arizona to learn how to use a stopwatch? That's part of it. It actually is uh, – it does play with your mind a little bit because, like, I was – I actually – like when I ended my my time on the stopwatch, that was when the first baseman caught it, as opposed to when the he ran through the, the bag, guy, the guy running through. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, so I've uh, learned some some things like that, and uh, uh, everyone's been very sweet. So that's very nice. Good. Yeah, and uh, we're going to see a night game tonight. Let's uh, let's talk. I, I've just done a post about it, and it's a thing that I think um, uh, everyone will ha- in in which everyone will have some interest, and that's the uh, the question of qualifying offers. Yeah, let's not talk about the World Series or the uh, Player of the Year or anything else. No, we're else. going to talk about let's that. Let's talk about My- Michael Kadire. He's the, he's the guy that everyone wants to talk well, about. Well, no, we're, we've embarked upon the, the you know the off season now. Uh, what do you yeah. what you got? You got a recap yeah. for the World Series? The Giants? No, won. I, I just wanted to make fun of you some more. Yeah, the the Giants won. <laughs> One yeah. of the teams because I think we spoke yeah. like after game. Five. Five. Right? Yeah. yeah, game five. Yeah. So it was. So we knew that one of the teams would win after that. <laughs> Well, I think we knew that before before Game Five. Right. We did. Well, we didn't know. We didn't know how good Madison Bumgarner was going to pitch. I don't think we talked right. about that. Yeah. No, you're right. We don't actually have to talk about the World Series. Right. If you want to proceed with the offseason, that is fine with me. I just uh, I, I always enjoy you picking like the thirteenth most interesting topic of the day. To that's not the thirteenth most most interesting. The quali- qualifying offers. I think that's that's okay. reasonable. Uh, sure. Okay. Maybe it's like seventh most most right. interesting. Well, yeah. right. you think the well, okay? So some there's a question of like. Yes, it has general. The World Series has general appeal, but in terms of what you can say about it, in terms of analysis, there's you know, there's it, it happened. It's a fact that it happened. Right. No, I agree. I let's mm-hmm. talk qualifying offers. Right. I repeal my objection. Yeah, you better. Yeah. You better. Uh, and I do. I do have plans of getting the Player of the Year as well. Uh, Michael Kadire. Yeah, about that guy. Okay, so that was so twelve. How many last year were there? How many qualifying offers last year? Nine, I think. 
Oh, okay. So uh, I don't know. It's either an increase of three, which sounds small, or it's an increase of of a third, which sounds bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, based on the fact that no one has ever accepted one, there's almost a little bit of a game theory element here where Major League teams should be more aggressive or are incentivized to be more aggressive by making more and more offers until the player actually shows that they're going to take this thing. And you kind of want to push the limits and say, okay, how marginal a player can we make the qualifying offer to, uh, which is either going to get us a draft pick or is going to serve to depress salary for that player, uh, you know, the, either of those are a pretty good outcome for the teams, or the teams in general, maybe not the team making it. But, you know, as a collective, the teams themselves have a incentive to uh, continue making qualifying offers until we reach the point at which players push back and say, okay, fine, we'll take it. Well, so would it be like a 50% acceptance rate? Because that would be, there's still a long way to go, it would seem. Well, I don't think you want a 50% acceptance rate because to get that high, that would mean you're making some pretty marginal calls and you're probably overpaying a decent amount of money. Uh, I do think, you know, Kadair is probably the most marginal guy we've seen offered. You could argue Kendris Morales last year was maybe as marginal or more marginal a player than Kadair this year. Uh, but, you know, he, Morales was coming off a pretty decent season and uh, had, you know, maybe a reputation of being better than he was. So it wasn't that shocking that the Mariners made him the qualifying offer. It was a little surprising he turned it down. Uh, but I think, you know, Kadair's kind of in that mold. Uh, but this is kind of like the line of like how bad a player, uh, or how mediocre a player can we, can we make the offer to. And I think that, you know, I, like I don't think the Rockies made the right decision here. I think they're, they're gonna probably get stuck with Kadair for $15 million next year. I don't think he's gonna be worth $15 million, especially to their team. But I do think that if you run the numbers, and the calculations, you say, okay, what do I think Michael Kadair is actually worth per year? It's probably nine, maybe. I think that's what the crowdsourcing at him at is like 218. And then you give him a little bit of a bonus for only taking one year, right? Like teams will pay more for a one-year contract because there's no long-term risk. So maybe on a one-year deal, he's worth 11 or 12, maybe. And then you say, okay, now the gap between what he's worth on a one-year deal and what we offered him is three million bucks. Uh, uh, the marginal return, if we get a, uh, compensation pick is worth, you know, maybe a couple million dollars itself. So if there's a 50-50 chance that he turns this down and goes and signs a three-year deal somewhere, uh, then, you know, this is the break-even point. Is, you know, we, we have a 50-50 shot at being overpaying by three million or we have a 50-50 shot at getting a three million dollar bonus. Uh, then it's the, you know, uh, an okay call. And so I don't hate this move for the Rockies. I think it's probably gonna turn out poorly for them and that they're gonna pay Michael Kadair 15 million dollars to be a, you know, one to one and a half win player next year, but there's at least some logic to why they did it. Right, and now uh, what do we? What is the union? Because probably Michael Kadire is not thrilled about it at this point, right? Because it seems like oh, the crowd had him. I think at like two years, two eighteen, yeah. two eighteen. Yeah. So well, on, so on the one hand, you say, well, if he plays this year for fifteen million dollars, and he can get at least a three million dollar contract next year, which seems reasonable, then I guess Michael Kadire has. Um, succeeded in some way. Well, I think Kadair, the crowd was probably too loud. I mean, I think uh, the market for Kadair was going to be more uh, aggressive than the crowd estimated. I think he was probably, without the qualifying offer, I would have guessed 330 or 333, somewhere in that range. Okay. That sounds uh, very similar to the contract he, he already had, right? Uh, I think he got 330 or 327, something mm-hmm. like that, from the Rockies the first time around. And then he's had you know, two of the best offensive years of his career the last two years, so he hasn't not played a whole lot, but, you know, when he's been on the field, he's been excellent uh, at the plate. 
Um, and, you know, right-handed power is in shortage right now in Major League Baseball. Teams, There's a lot of teams looking for it. Uh, and Kadir has the veteran good clubhouse stuff that teams like. So I think without the qualifying offer, three years was not going to be a problem for him, probably in that $10 million a year range. Now he's kind of in that, like, Kyle Loesch uh, window where, you know, teams might look at him and say, I like this guy. Do I like him enough to give him a three-year deal and sacrifice the draft pick? Because teams are probably not going to sacrifice the pick for two, uh, just two years. It's just not a long enough return. Uh, so they're probably going to say, you know, for Kadir to pass up $15 million, he's going to want three years. For a team to give up the draft pick, they're going to want three years. So that's probably the magic number is will a team still go in that 330 range in order to, to get him, and will they give up the draft pick plus the $30 million? Uh, I, I'm guessing no, and I think he's going to end up taking the $15 million, but there's a chance. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, generally, because this 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 was uh, changed from the what the Type A Type B uh, player designations. The, is the union? Do you suppose the players generally are they at least the early returns on how qualifying offers have been used? Do you think the players are happy about it? I don't think they're happy with the way it affects different types of players. I mean, so clearly, you know, they're never going to be happy with the fact that it's a tax. Like that's that's what it's there for. It's it's designed to drive down players' salaries. It's not equitable, and I think that's the, maybe the issue the Players Association is going to have when the CBA negotiations come next, uh, next time, is it doesn't really do anything to the top-end guys, right? Like Robinson Cano or Max Scherzer or whatever. These guys, like, it doesn't affect their price hardly at all. Teams who want those guys are going to be like, whatever, I'm already spending $175 million, or in Cano's case, $240 million. What's the loss of a $2 million draft pick in the grand scheme of things? We're adding, you know, half a percent of cost to the total to the total deal. Mm-hmm. When you have a guy like, you know, Kyle Loesch or something and you're surrendering a two or three million dollar draft pick on a thirty million dollar deal, now the the tax is like six or nine percent of the contract or something, right? So uh it's a much higher tax on middle tier players and I think uh especially the bubble guys who uh don't get qualifying offers and end up getting large contracts because they're not attached to free to the to compensation. Uh that's kind of what maybe the players association want to stop is where, you know, a guy like Loesch ends up getting a lot less than, you know, Matt Garza or uh, maybe an inferior pitcher, uh, Edwin Jackson or something, who's not seen as, as good but didn't have, didn't have the compensation attached, and so he gets $20 million more. And is it, are we calling it, is it a regressive sort of tax? Is that what that is? Uh, I mean, yeah, you could describe it as a regressive tax in some ways where it hurts the bottom more than it hurts the top. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, you had mentioned that in a previous edition of the podcast we had discussed uh, regressive taxes, and I wanted to, uh, just to indicate to you that I remembered that. Yeah, I think listeners uh, freaked out when we did that because we, we claimed a liberal bias and oh, yeah. political yeah, agendas. Yeah, yeah. They didn't like the fact that we used terms about taxes. Oh, you did it. I'm uh, I'm faultless <laughs> and without right. fault. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so we so we had the that, uh, and then the other one. Well, I suppose it wasn't. A surprise, but in terms of how it relates to the crowd, uh, the oh yes, uh, Francisco Liriano received a uh, a qualifying offer. I think the crowd said uh, over half a chance that he would not receive one. Uh, it, for you, was that as surprising as it might have been for the uh, the people? I don't think so. I think the, maybe the crowd was overreacting a little bit to last year where the Pirates didn't make one to I believe AJ Burnett maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and then he went and signed for basically the same amount of money. Uh, with the Phillies, um, 
I think if you look at Francisco Liriano, uh, you know, Steamer projects him as like a three-win pitcher. He's almost in that tier, not, you know, certainly not in terms of durability, but on a per innings basis, he's not that far behind the, like, John Lester, James Shields group, uh, you know, certainly behind Scherzer to some extent, but, you know, not that far away from Shields minus the durability. So if you're going to say, okay, we're expecting Shields to get, you know, 480 or something like that, uh, there's no way Liriano is going to take 115. Uh, I think, you know, even with the qualifying offer attached, he's going to get 345, <clears throat> something in that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for him to, to take 115, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what the crowd saw. Uh, maybe they just held his injuries against him too much and, and forgot to adjust for the fact that when he's on the mound, he's actually quite good. Right, right, right. And well, maybe that, that's the situation, the question of, uh, durability, whether a team would feel comfortable signing him to a longer term deal. But I guess a, I guess th- when you think of Francisco Liriano, if even if you think maybe oh he'll miss half a season, when he is on the mound, he's producing wins at a at a rate um, commensurate with with those uh, you know n- maybe not as you said not the top ist tiers but the top tiers. Yeah, I mean I don't think you have to. You know, he's not going to get a long term deal because of his health concerns, but I don't think you need a long term deal in order to turn down the qualifying offer. You need three years basically, and I think Liriano three years is not a problem. Okay, right. And then uh, I had I had asked the the crowd about uh, Hiroki Kuroda, and he did not receive a qualifying offer. It, he and the Yankees have been going sort of uh, one year at a time for a little bit now. Yeah, I think with a guy like Kuroda, the qualifying offer doesn't actually give you that much more leverage. Like with other players, you say, okay, maybe you want four or five years, so I'm going to give you the qualifying offer and kind of you know make you decide whether you want a one year deal or whether you're going to go uh, you know. Chase a, a longer term deal at a lower annual average value. If Crota's only going to sign a one year any one year deal anyway, making a fifteen million dollar minimum one year offer doesn't do you any good. Um, so I, you know I think the Yankees know that no team's going to give up a draft pick to sign Crota uh, for one year. Like the, there's just not enough value there, um, you know, uh, for him to perform in one season enough to justify the cost of losing a draft pick. So the, the draft pick compensation would essentially force him back to the Yankees at 15 million. They probably think, okay, maybe Kuroto we can get back for 12 or 13 or something, or maybe 10. I mean, who knows? Uh, and you know, maybe they'd have to go to 15. But even if they wanted to, it get, not making them a qualifying offer gives them the ability to offer less. And if Kuroto decides he wants to keep pitching for the Yankees but needs the 15 million, they can still give it to him later. Okay, uh, I do want to get to the Player of the Year award momentarily. Uh, in the meantime, though, two transactions of note. I think the Red Sox sign Koji Yoahara to a two-year, eighteen million dollar contract, which we had, we've just invoked this uh, as far as the qualifying offer is concerned. Uh, if if they had offered him one, that would have been one year, fifteen million. So Yoahara, who's in his forties already, or he's about to turn forty, um, uh, gets a, a second year and three more million dollars. Do you, I mean? People don't pitch much into their 40s, so perhaps uh, he said, well, two years is all I'm going to pitch anyway, and now I can guarantee that I get $3 million uh, more than I would have if I just got the qualifying offer and maybe didn't make it through the season. Well, I don't think he was going to get the qualifying offer. So I think if, if he thought he was going to get 115, he wouldn't have taken 218, but I don't think he would have gotten 115. I think given his second-half problems where he got hit pretty hard down the stretch uh, and the fact that he's older and isn't a huge stuff guy, uh, it's going to be really tough. It would have been really tough for a team to, uh, you know, m- maybe bid more than what the Red Sox bid. I, don't, I can't see him getting more than ten or eleven million dollars a year on a, uh, even in free agency if he would have hit, hit the market. So I think fifteen million for one year was probably always off the table for him. And then from the Red Sox point of view, they say, I mean, why sign him to a two-year contract then? I, I mean, I think it's probably just easier to say, okay, you know, if we're 
fighting over nine or ten or eleven million dollars a year. We're kind of in agreement on the AAV. Uh, maybe we'll we'll lose you if we only offer the one year, right? But we can keep you from free agency. We can keep you know the Yankees or another team from outbidding us and and taking away a pretty good closer. Uh, Uahara, despite his second half problems, his his peripheral numbers were just fine. Uh, he's still striking everybody out and not walking anybody. He just gave up a bunch of hits and home runs in the second half of the season. Um, I think for them, they say you know the second year was basically a tax to keep him. Where if they would have said we're sticking with a one year nine or ten million dollar offer, he would have hit free agency, and then you know maybe another team comes in and says uh, we'll go two years at twenty something and they lose him. And to them, giving up that second year uh, was worth keeping him around. Okay, and then uh, the uh, I think the first trade or first traded note at least during the off season, uh, the Brewers sent Marco Estrada to the Toronto Blue Jays for Adam Lind. Uh, Adam Lind, I think he, he was or is a candidate for a player or for a team option. I'm assuming that the Brewers have in mind to exercise that. Well, it was already picked up. Oh, the, yeah, the, Blue Jays, the, Blue, the Blue Jays couldn't have traded him if they. You had to pick up the option before you could trade him. Before they, oh, yes, yeah. that's right. Because otherwise yeah. they would not have had him. Yeah. For the, right. Uh, that would be unfair. Yeah, you, you can't the uh, like, hey, I'm going to decline this guy's option and then trade him after he's been made a free agent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, the, so they did that, and uh, I guess what the because because the Brewers have not had a proper first baseman in a little bit. They had uh, Mark Reynolds this past year. Lyle Overbay as well. Yeah. Did, did they really? Yeah. They, they gave Lyle Overbay a lot of playing time. It's usually not going to. Not going to work out well for you. No. Yeah. 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 Especially when you. When you lose your division over the last 10 days of the season, you might look back and say, oh, man, we gave a lot of playing time to Lyle Overbay. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that they regret that. And that's one of the reasons why they made a trade for Adam Lynn so quickly in the offseason. Right. Uh, now, uh, the Blue Jays, I don't think, really regarded uh, Adam Lind as an answer at, at first base. What, what makes it different for the Brewers? Because of the, the sort of weaknesses we just mentioned? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the free agent depth charts, which I linked to them this morning, uh, basically the first free agent market this year is Adam LaRoche and nobody else. Like, the, you know, you're, if you don't make a trade or sign Adam LaRoche, uh, you're, you're going to be digging from the same bottom of the barrel that they were digging from last year. I think the number two guy on the list is Mark Reynolds, who's <laughs> the guy the Brewers are probably replacing. Uh, so... If they don't want to find out on LaRoche, uh, which, you know, I think there's valid reasons to not want to give LaRoche a two or three year deal at 10 or 11 or 12 million a year, whatever he's going to get, uh, in his mid thirties. Uh, Lind is not that much worse of a player. I think he is worse. He's certainly not as good a defender as LaRoche, uh, and has bigger platoon splits, so he's not an everyday guy. Uh, but you know, for seven and a half million for one year, uh, versus, you know, maybe 30 million for three years, Lind is certainly the more economical choice. And so to strike early and kind of get this crossed off the list, I think they put themselves in a situation where they didn't have to sit, sit around and scramble, and uh, I think a lot of the other kind of second-tier first-base options are right-handed, and their lineup was already too right-handed with, uh, you know, Ryan Braun and Carlos Gomez and, you know, basically all the good hitters at Ramos Ramirez, they're all right-handed. And so they wanted the lefty, uh, you know, so that took them out of the kind of Michael Morse, Billy Butler uh, group. And so if you say, okay, well, <laughs> my options are Adam LaRoche, trade for Adam Lind, uh, trading for Lind is probably the better option. And, uh, oh yeah, I, we did, I think Jeff recently did a post, uh, sort of an update of a concept that's appeared in the pages of Fangraphs before, but he looked at the amount of negative war, uh, negative wins produced by each team. Yeah. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, basically, if you do a reverse sort of the teams, you know, the, the, the negative war produced by teams, <clears throat> You essentially get a list of the best teams 
I, I, yeah. I guess I'm curious. Maybe maybe speak to the relationship between teams which are able to avoid having a, a, a hole like that, and then how that affects their end of season win totals. Well, I think there's a, so. I will say there's a selection bias issue at play first of all, because if you say okay, we're going to limit the scale to teams who didn't have big negative holes somewhere, you're basically dealing with teams who were incentivized to avoid those kinds of things. Where if a problem popped up mid-season, they were going to go try and do something about it. Versus a rebuilding team who's probably not trying to win is like, ah, we've got this young kid playing really badly, but we're not necessarily going for the playoffs this year, so we're going to continue to let this kid struggle rather than replacing him with a veteran acquisition. Right. Uh, if you you know, a good team like the Nationals or something like that who starts off with a hole and that guy plays really poorly for April and May, they're going to bench him and go find someone else and they're going to cut off that hole. So essentially you're you're selecting for teams who have already decided that they're going to fill holes in season. Uh, but I do think, you know, there's certainly uh, value and a lot of it probably more than people expect in avoiding uh, complete disasters uh, to the point where I think, you know, I've been one who's argued that War is mostly linear, uh, maybe not perfectly linear, but mostly linear, where, you know, going from zero to one win or negative one win to zero wins, uh, which is, you know, basically replacing a terrible player with a bad player, uh, in either case, is just as valuable as going from a four-win guy to a five-win guy, where you, you know, you add a superstar and you get your name in the paper, and you say, man, we just acquired this really awesome guy, which fans will give you a lot of credit for, uh, but I don't think it's that much more valuable getting a one-win upgrade on a good player as it is uh, getting a one-win upgrade. Cheaper, a bad player. cheaper too, I would assume. Cer- certainly cheaper. And, you know, I mean, th- the reality is no team is having to choose between replacing a four-win guy with a five-win guy. Like, no one has four-win players everywhere, and uh, that's their path of least resistance to, to make a one-win upgrade. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of cheap, you know, freely available replacement-level players out there, and if you're smart, maybe one-win guys, you can kind of pick off uh, the heap and, and find guys who are above replacement level for the league minimum or something close to it. And if you're a smart team who can fill out a whole bunch of good role players and, and that'll save you a bunch of money and then you can afford some star players. Right, which is uh, – now, now th- th- this principle we're discussing, you're talking about the essentially the marginal improvement based off of free agent signing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we've talked about this directly, but last year signing a Robinson Cano for the Mariners, w- w- now, was this mysterious for that reason? Because the Mariners had a glut of reasonably talented, if not necessarily MLB-proven middle infield guys. So signing Robinson Cano, obviously he's still going to be very good, but the improvement you might have over those middle infield guys, it seems like the, that's money that could be dispersed elsewhere to create uh, an, an equal improvement of wins other uh, in other areas. Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the questions that I think is a little bit difficult to answer is uh, essentially the frictional cost argument, right? So if there was zero frictional cost, and you could move players for equally valuable returns without any harm, then it wouldn't be a big deal. You could sign whoever you wanted, and if you had a three-win second baseman, you could sign a five-win second baseman and trade the three-win second baseman for whatever you needed, uh, and you'd be better off than pursuing whatever lesser, you know, say you needed a left fielder, uh, and you, instead of signing a three-win left fielder, now you have better off, you're better off overall by having made the trade. But there is frictional cost in Major League Baseball, and I think when you block a prospect like the Mariners did with Nick Franklin, or you push Dustin Ackley to the outfield 
time, uh, you kind of lower the internal value of the guys you're keeping or that you already have. Uh, and I think we see that Franklin probably lost some trade value after he was sent back to AAA for another year. And not that Nick, I, I'm, you know, I've always been a little lower on Nick Franklin. Some other people, I don't think he's a superstar. And I don't think you necessarily say, well, I have Nick Franklin. I can't, I can't improve on that. Uh, I have to give this guy a shot. But I do think, you know, the Mariners probably lost some value in Nick Franklin from holding him until after they signed uh, Cano, and, and they weren't able to trade him for, you know, what I think like the projections still see him as a league average player. Uh, you know, they got Austin Jackson uh, uh, in return um, in that trade as well, but, you know, they only have one year of Austin Jackson versus they would have had Nick, six years of Nick Franklin. Uh, I do think there there are frictional costs, and so when you make a move like that and you upgrade, and so maybe you go from a two-win player to a four-win player or a five-win player like Cano, uh, you probably don't get the two wins back in a trade uh, as easily as, as one might think. Right. Okay, uh, player of the year. Player of the year, Clayton the, Kershaw. The, yes, player of the year is Clayton Kershaw. Eh, pretty He's close, good. right? Pretty close between he and Trout. Yeah, basically a tie. Right. I mean, as, as close. I mean, I think it was six first place votes for Kershaw, five for Trout. Uh, I, I would imagine we probably won't have too many more vote this close in the coming years. Okay, right. And uh, the, I guess the, so. It seems the the voters who went with Kershaw. Um, I mean, I know the issue for me was well, it was not a huge issue. Again, I think I stated in my ballot. Uh, I can see this going a number of other different ways, and I think you know with eleven ballots it did, um, but they were all reasonable. Um, for Kershaw to be the winner, generally speaking, I, I, or one of the, the points was because like, I think he only had twenty seven starts, right? Yeah. And now, to you could say, well, on his own merits, even that's a full season. We can ignore the other four to six starts he would have made. He was that good in that amount of time. It doesn't matter. And then the other t- the other point you're looking at, well, you know what the Dodgers did over that first month. And it's not necessarily the Dodgers, but what any team, because Clayton Kershaw had not necessarily be held accountable for for what a team is doing. Uh, you know what they have in the in the way of you know starters six through ten or whatever. Uh, but do you think that that was for, for voters? Did that seemed like it was the theme. What, the, what happened to those other four to seven starts, or do you think it was something different? No, I think that's right. I think the quantity versus quality argument is something that comes up in baseball pretty frequently. I think we see this in the Hall of Fame when you uh, have peak versus uh, durability arguments, where you know maybe someone argues in favor of uh, a guy like I don't know Kirby Puckett, who was you know pretty good for a short period of time until his career was ended uh, by getting hit in the face, but you know certainly didn't put up Hall of Fame counting stats. Uh, because his career ended at 32 or 33 or something along those lines. Um, you know, and I think Chase Utley is probably a kind of a modern candidate like that, where you could say, based on his peak and, and what he was at the kind of the best years of his career, he was a Hall of Famer for the time that he was good. But, you know, he broke in when he was 25 and uh, isn't going to play until he's 40 probably. And uh, so Utley's probably not going to have Hall of Fame numbers and probably won't get in uh, based on the durability argument. So if you're one who favors quantity, uh, you probably went with Trout and you held Kershaw's lack of uh, the extra four or five starts against him and said, you know, Trout played the whole season. He was almost as good on a per uh, game basis uh, or per batter face basis, however you want to do it. Uh, so therefore we're giving the edge to the guy who played more. If you're more of a peak guy and you say, you know what, I really just want to reward the most outstanding performance of the year, uh, like I think Jeff Sullivan articulated in his, where he was really hoping to make a case for Aroldis Chapman somewhere on the ballot because Chapman's season was so amazing, uh, then I think you probably go with Kershaw. And I, I, uh, 
didn't have a boat, so I can't say which way I would have gone, but I, I certainly tend to lean more towards peak over durability myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a, a reasonable argument for both. I don't think that one is clearly right and one is clearly wrong. Uh, but I do think uh, both both sides saying, you know what, I'm going to hold Paul Mahomes having to start five games against Kershaw is fair, and saying I'm only going to judge Kershaw on what he did is fair. Right. Now, here's a question. <clears throat> uh, what do we generally expect? Well, we know that there's no such thing as a fifth starter, right? That's a, I've seen that comment before in, yeah. in fan graphs, and that's because teams are generally going to use more than five starters during the course of the season because pitchers have to – Pitchers are constantly abusing their arms. That's what right. they do. That's part of their job description. Yeah. What do we expect from a like that first guy who's called up? What do we generally expect? I mean, you know, empirically in terms of wins. Well, I think I mean, if the theory of replacement level holds, you expect him to basically be a zero win guy. I mean, okay. the sixth starter is kind of the definition of a replacement level starter or right. a replacement level pitcher. But a lot of teams are kind of bad at this, honestly. Like uh, stockpiling depth. Is a little bit tricky because if you have a guy who's a you know decent veteran major league pitcher, he's probably not going to agree to go pitch in AAA for a couple months until someone gets hurt. I think we saw this with Randy Wolf and the Mariners last year, where they tried to get him to sign in the advanced consent clause, where you know if someone came back or Tywin Walker or one of these guys started pitching really well, they wanted to be ability to send him to the minor leagues and make him hang out in AAA for a few months, and he balked and said no and asked out of the contract. Uh, so it's tough to get a guy like that to serve as AAA fodder and, and kind of hang around uh, because they think, you know, I can pitch out of something bullpen or someone will have use for me. Uh, and you don't generally want to rush your prospects. Like maybe you have an above replacement level uh, 21-year-old who's 97 miles an hour, but it's better for his development to stay in the minor leagues than it is for him to come up and make three or four or five starts when he's not ready and his changeup isn't good enough and he's going to get rocked and then go back down. Uh, so maybe teams carry these below replacement level guys who will accept AAA assignments and you don't really care about their future. So if they come up and get pounded, you know, whatever, it's one start, not the end of the world. The problem is if you have multiple injuries uh, to your pitching front mm-hmm. uh, and now you've got several of these guys in the rotation and they're not going anywhere anytime soon, you're sunk. Right. And then and, and I guess what the Dodgers, the way the Dodgers solved it, and I think the Red Sox did this with Chris Capuano, is you can have, you can sign a guy who's maybe... You don't. You you definitely don't view him as as part of your rotation uh, starting on opening day, uh, but you do. He does have the ability to start. So you know, Mahone, Capuano, those are the sorts of pitchers. I, I think probably Roberto Hernandez at points. Basically, all of the because uh, Roberto Hernandez, Kevin Correa, there, there might have even been one more. Uh, one more. Carlos Villanueva, maybe. Right, right, right. So pitchers who the the team signing him says, listen. If there's an injury, you're the first guy who's going to join the rotation. Uh, in the meantime, though, you'll be in the bullpen, you know, pitching, you know, probably in long relief. And so the player has to agree to that, I guess. Yeah, I think the way the teams have gotten these guys is to pay salaries slightly higher than maybe what teams might have expected for a bullpen guy. Like, I think Roberto Hernandez got, what, $5 million last year. Uh, Villanueva got $8 million over two years. Uh, Capuano and Mahomes were cheap, but I think if you want one of these guys, you generally have to pay a couple million dollar premium over, you know, you say, okay, well, I can get any generic slub to throw, you know, 60 low leverage innings and mop up duty, but you so say you don't need to pay a couple million for that, but you're paying the premium for the chance that he can give you a hundred decent innings out of the rotation if need be. Right. And uh, now wait a second. I have seen, I don't know if I'm allowed to admit this, uh, but I have seen the player of the year trophy. I've seen uh, it. Yes. Am I allowed to say that? 
I mean, you just did, so. Yeah, I guess we'll just keep that. Now, am I allowed to share the image of the Player of the Year trophy? Uh, like, do you, do you want to tweet it out or something? Well, I don't know. We could even put it. We could put it in Instagram's post. Uh, I don't think so. I think maybe you should wait until the the issues surrounding the trophy have been resolved and let the Dark Overlord or uh, someone else make that. Yeah, I, well, I wasn't demanding to do it, Dave. Yeah, Cameron. I I think no. Let's let's not have you spoil leak it. Yeah, don't I'm not be a leaker. Le- I'm not leaking. I'm not leaking. Yeah, don't don't be Julian Assange of Fangraphs. There's gonna be, but there is there's is one that exists though. It does exist, yep. and I believe that the goal is for Clayton Kershaw to hold it at some point. And yes, and if we, we, you know, Sarah's going to Clayton Kershaw's house. That's the plan, right? Yeah, we wanted we wanted <laughs> you know to get arrested uh, and get some kind of restraining order where he has to stay 100 feet away from Clayton Kershaw at all times. That would uh, that would hurt his ability to cover the Dodgers when they came. It would, yeah. Um, uh, I will say though, I think it's it surprised me with the with how nice it was. I think yeah, it is. Uh, it's neat looking. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised. I was surprised. But now that I've said yeah. that, maybe now people are raising their expectations. Lower them, please. Lower them. Yeah, yeah. Have zero expectations and be pleasantly surprised when you see a picture of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking and hope, of, hopefully it's like a picture of like Clayton Kershaw, like sitting on a boat, taking it with him. That'd be fun. Well, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. yeah like tr- carrying it around like a gnome or something. Just a pleasure. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe he could put it like – well, this will, reference will be lost on you, but like Flava Flav from Public Enemy, he can wear it around his uh, neck. That's lost yeah. on you. Yeah, I think that would not be – not probably be comfortable. Right. No, I didn't say it would be comfortable, but everyone right. would know that he was the Fangraphs Player of the Year. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, all right, Clayton Kershaw, we're calling you out. Wear your trophy around your neck. Okay. Uh, anything we, we missed – uh, Joe Madden. Joe Madden is the new manager of the Cubs, and he's going to get paid a lot of money. Right. And he's a good manager, from what we know. Yeah, we think so. He's able to, I think, what, he embraces advanced metrics, but he's also able to, uh, he's a leader of men. Yeah. I mean, I think, right, that's the thing that I think we think, but we don't know, and right. we can't prove. Uh, the Rays have done well with him in charge, and he seems to be one who works well with an analytical front office, and there's not a lot of guys out there who do that, so... He has a valued skill set, and we think it's helpful, but we don't do it now. I think, you know, I have scaled back my opinions about managers because we just don't really know that much. Right. Uh, um, he is amusing sometimes, though, and I will say that uh, Len Casper and Jim Deshaies, who are broadcasters for WGN, uh, tend to tend to uh, be more sympathetic to advanced metrics as well. I would actually enjoy a conversation between either of those two and, and, uh, and Joe Matt. I think that might be nice. Or maybe a conversation with them and you. Maybe you should have them on the podcast. I've had Jim Deshaies on, not that you uh, know. Yeah, I wouldn't know that. No, you wouldn't know that. But maybe yeah. maybe Joe Madden. Uh, yeah, or Len Casper. Yeah, I'll have Len Casper, sure. Yeah, you should have Len Casper on. All right, we'll have Len Casper. I think we've had Boog on, too, Boog Shambi. Oh, yeah, I like Boog. Yeah, Boog's nice. Boog, he has such a nice voice, and he's so... Uh, He's so tolerant of the, or he's interested in the advanced metrics. He's a he's a true ally, a good ally. I think he he understands how to get them into the mainstream more than anyone else by hardly ever referencing the numbers, but talking constantly about the concepts, which yeah. is how you educate the people. Right. Good it's job, a, Boog. Yeah, good job, Boog. It is about the concepts. In fact, uh, yeah. I took a number of uh, conceptual classes in high school and college. I took conceptual math and conceptual physics. Yeah. And so, so if Boog had taught, if Boog could teach like conceptual. Conceptual sabermetrics, essentially. Yeah, conceptual broadcasting. Conceptual broadcasting. Yeah. Mm, all right, we did it. I think it's fine. Uh, thank, yeah. you. thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you. All right, that has been uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. 
This has been Fangraphs Audio.